there are few decades in film history that have been as scrutinized as the 1980s. But to really understand the decade and its movies, it's going to take a couple someones who were there for it the first time around. Drew McQueenie and Scott Weinberg are ready to review every major film of the decade one month at a time. They'll look at what worked then, what endures now, and how it felt to be there when it all went down. Turn back the calendar with us. It's the 80s all over. Miller's Abracadabra was the number one song in the country. The U.S. intervened in Beirut, driving out Yasser Arafat in the PLO. The first gay games were held in San Francisco, and on August 17th, the very first commercially produced compact disc was pressed in Langenhagen, Germany, featuring Chopin's waltzes as performed by Claudia Aro. What other classics do you think were produced in August of 1982? We're going to answer that question because I'm Drew McWeenie, the co-host of 80s All Over, and I'm joined by my co-host, Scott Weinberg. Welcome to the August 1982 episode of 80s All Over, the best podcast in the fucking world. Wow. Came out strong this week. Scott showed up to play. Another thing I wanted to say real quickly is we've been relatively boner free here at uh, 80s All Over for the last couple of months. and That's been exciting. Um, there are some things to address. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. Say oops, upside your head. You guys have been so good about fact checking us and making sure that if we miss something, you, you bring it to our attention. There's something you've brought to our attention several times that we keep. I keep saying, OK, we'll address this in a future episode next month. When we get to September of 1982, Scott and I will finally address the Hell Knight question. We blew it. We missed it. I don't know how we missed it because it's Hell Knight, but we missed Hell Knight. Next month, we will both make an effort to watch Hell Knight and have the Hell Knight conversation finally because I'm really unclear how it completely and utterly flew under the radar. What I'm noticing, Drew, is that August is like kind of a dumping ground month, correct? I think the idea was August to September is when people actually go out of town. And that's when your real vacations are happening. And they did. They abandoned these months for a long time. And with that said, let's jump right into it. Scott, I'm going to let you kick things off with a uh, movie that was originally released in Canada, I believe, in 1980, but took a while to make its way to the U.S. Tell me a little bit about Funeral Home. If you took the DNA from Hitchcock's Psycho out of this movie... It would crumble into dust and fall on the ground broken. I actually saw this film at the draft house during some marathon at some point for some reason. And dull. A young girl who goes to stay with her grandmother in a bed and breakfast that used to be a funeral home. And she hears creepy whispers down at night in the basement. And it seems to lean a lot more on atmosphere and mood than gore and and murder. And I respect it for that. But you cannot get past how dreary and dull and uneventful this movie is. And we just covered another William Fruitt film. I thought Trapped was pretty good for what it was. Trapped had a lot of energy and Trapped made pretty good use of its cast. And in general, this guy's 80s movies are bananas. We've got Blue Monkey coming and uh, Killer Party and Spasms. I can't believe that the same guy's behind the camera on Funeral Home and Trapped because they are so radically different just in terms of pulse. Our next movie is what I would consider one of those, how did I never see this? And boy, I'm glad I finally did discoveries for this podcast. Man, Motherload is something else. It began as a search for the last great treasure on earth. It lured them into danger and incredible adventure. The lure of gold can make a man do anything anything you stay the hell out of my mind laddie that's 
down here, Andrea. I'm gonna find it. And anything can happen when you're after the mother load. Charlton Heston. Nick Mancuso. Kim Basinger. Mother load. The next great adventure. Charlton Heston directs. Uh, <laughs> probably looked around at people like uh, Robert Redford and Warren Beatty and said, I am a veteran actor. I too can direct films. So he got a screenplay by his kid, Fraser Heston. They went into Canada and they made this weird adventure thriller mashup that seems to be like Call of the Wild meets the Mountain Men. There is a lot of treasure of the Sierra Madre in this film's DNA. Like it wants to hit the same point, which is that, you know, when you are searching for treasure, when you are driven by that that love and that lust, uh, you'll do anything for it. Charlton Heston, or as I call him, Cheston. Wait, can you just for a second before you say what kind of accent he does, can you try and do it for us? It's so mind boggling difficult to get your head around because Charlton Heston already has a very distinct way of talking and he takes his time and choose every word. So when you ask him to play Scottish twin brothers, <laughs> and you then try to lay a Scottish burr on top of what's already barely comprehensible Oy. the result is a mess oh my god it's dude. fucking crazy his scottish accent i'm watching the movie he pops up about what a half an hour in most of the movie is about nick mancuso and uh kim basinger the accent breaks out and i had to like stifle it i'm like all right give it a second give it a second <laughs> no it doesn't get any better no man it sounds like <laughs> like the Outback Steakhouse Australian accent does not sound Australian. It sounds like the most cliched Australian voice ever. That's what Heston Scottish do Scotty from Star Trek times 10. First of all, if you're looking for somebody to curb the bad habits of inveterate scenery chewing over actor Charlton Heston, the solution is not letting Charlton Heston direct. Now there are no hands on the reins. And there are two Chestons. Yes, two Chestons for the price of one, which is special on top of special there are things about the direction that i actually like the early section of the movie where it's nick mancuso who buys a water plane there's no real indication that he's ever flown there is gorgeous british columbia stuff and not just gorgeous in terms of the scenery but i really like the way they handle the the journey like it feels like you're really flying with them and you're flying low and it's a little dangerous and you get a real look at how remote these locations are. You're going to nowhere land. Yeah. Uh, if you find yourself stuck watching this movie, if, for example, you run a podcast in which you promise to watch every major <laughs> release of the 1980s and therefore find yourself one night at 1.30 in the morning watching Mother Load starring Charlton Heston, um, it does have some really lovely cinematography. There is a plane wreck in this movie. The water plane does like a cartwheeling. And I thought... There's no effing way they plan that. Like, it is a literal plane crash. And uh, so I did some research and I found a review and it said, of course, that plane crash was not planned, but it was they were they got it and they kept it. And they incorporated it into the film. Something has gone terribly wrong. It is, it is an awesome plane crash. And yeah, when it happens, you're like, oh, wow, did everyone die? Was that, did they just watch everyone right, like, die? You couldn't plan that with outside of CGI. You couldn't plan that plane crash <laughs> no. if you wanted to. Let's put it this way. I would not want to be in that no, plane. That looked really were, bad. Yeah, I yeah, mean, like, that's... imagine you're on a little water plane and one of the pontoons hits before the other one and it skip, 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 and then kind of turns on its nose and flips over twice. And I'm like, that was not planned. Kim Basinger, I think her script must have just said scream because that's really what she does in the movie. She screams a lot. Her character is written as very able in certain regards, like when there's stuff to do or when she's got to fix the plane or when she... She seems like she knows what she's, she's got doing. Some personality and some attitude, but uh, that's all on her cuz the screenplay gives her nothing. And then quickly it turns into run and scream, run and scream, run and scream. It's one of those things you look at a movie like this and you're like, "I can see how you would look at her and say, "All right, ignore the movie. How is she handling this? She's up against Chuck Heston. That's a lot of Cheston for anybody to have to deal with on screen. Nick Mancuso doesn't give her anything back to work with. He is a blank wall of an actor. So for her to make any impression at all, 
it's kind of on her. She's she's interesting enough that you go, I, I would cast her in something else. She, she's something. I will say this about Fraser C. Heston and Charlton Heston as a team. They are no Michael and Kirk Douglas. Fraser Heston would go on to direct Needful Things. Uh, we'll get to that soon. All right, so there. Uh, I did not exactly enjoy Motherlode, but I am glad that I could check it off the list. It was an interesting relic. And then our next film comes from the B-movie master who gave us the original, Gone in 60 Seconds. This is H.B. Halicki's Jumpman. From the maker of Gone in 60 Seconds, chase thriller of the 70s, comes the chase thriller of the 80s, the Junkman. From junk cars to movie stars, Harlan Hollis is the American dream. Witness the destruction of over 150 vehicles in some of the most daring airplane car and blimp stunts ever filmed. The Junkman, two years in the making. The chase thriller of the 80s for the entire family. Rated PG. It almost plays like an ad for the earlier film. They reference it so often. It is a virtually plotless road movie that is painfully amateurish in between car crashes. And that is the only reason to see the film because I don't know if it still does, but it held the record for most car crashes in a movie. This stuff makes Hal Needham look like Warren Beatty. This is a cinematic version of a demolition derby. Beyond five minutes, I like... I don't get the appeal. What is the appeal of seeing two cars plow into each other? I like it if it's in service of something. Like, I love in Blues Brothers where they start piling cars up, but I love the absurdity of it. Removed from context? Yeah, not really. In this movie, it's just like, let's take those Blues Brothers moments and just make the film about that. If you are a an aficionado of car crashes, the junk man will be a discovery for you. Personally, it bored the hell out of me. Let's just move on then to this next one, which is an entry from one of the most prolific German filmmakers of the era. I can't think of anybody else I would really compare to Rainier Werner Fassbinder. And let's talk this week about his film, Lola. <laughs> come talk to me, Lola, ein Film um Liebe, Macht, Profit und Moral. Fastbinder, for the most part, is a kind of a blank spot in my film history. As, as Drew has mentioned, the guy was amazingly prolific. Unfortunately, died very young of, a, I believe, a cocaine overdose at 32. And I think Lola is a fantastic movie. This is the kind of film you have to sit and focus on. And I'm glad I did. Armin Mueller-Stahl plays a, a good-natured bureaucrat who begins a romance unknown to him with a prostitute played by Barbara Sakawa. His romantic rival is a, a, a local real estate developer who's very well, wealthy and powerful. And it's about how uh, Armin Mueller-Stahl goes up against the system. Uh, and it's all inspired by... Uh, falling in love, probably with the wrong woman. It started life as a remake of the Blue Angel, which is uh, Marlena Dietrich's most famous, I would say, defining role. It became something radically different. Like, I think Fastbinder, even if he was going to try a traditional remake, was never going to be capable of that. I find that with his movies, I admire him more than I like his movies. This is an easier one to get your head around. And I think part of it is that he's working in big, broad melodrama here. This is one of the things that, that I think makes him unique and makes him stand out. Um, there's not a lot of uh, post-war German work that is openly critical of Germany and that is honest and I think clear-eyed about it. And for some reason, he was able to work in a really big commercial sort of way. He was an angry guy, man. He made a lot of, like, for a young man, he made a lot of serious and uh, mature films about not just politics, but human nature, the human behavior uh, of the German people. Having only seen a handful of his films, I was able to grasp that. I, I think he's fascinating. I think this movie is beautifully photographed. There's a real weird lushness to it, which is strange because it all looks like sort of bruised, spoiled fruit. There is some striking use of color, uh, especially on the characters' faces and the production design. There, uh, It has a 
kind of playful sense of humor in a lot of ways to it. And I did not anticipate that. I thought it would be very downbeat. I think the fact that he's working in a love triangle that is part mercenary, part real, part and, you know, Lola kind of catches feelings at a certain point. Ill-fated. Ill-fated is the is the word I would use to describe because I'm watching it and I'm like, deep down, the Armin Mueller stall character, he knows that this is never going to work. Well, and she plays a role when she's with him, whereas with the other guy, the, the shady business dude, Shuckert, she's basically herself. And it's interesting because he obviously benefits enormously from decisions that Armin Mueller stall makes. So there is that weird pressure that's happening. And there's a lot going on. Um, while we're working in a foreign mode, let's head over to Italy for our next film. Yeah, a strikingly different film in the level <laughs> of quality. We go from uh, one of Fastbinder's most beloved films to one of Lucio Fulci's most bizarre films, the crazily violent Contraband. I think saying crazily violent even undersells it still. This <laughs> movie is nuts. Holy <laughs> shit. Okay. Like like most horror fans, I grew up with Lucio Fulci based on Zombie, House by the Cemetery, The Beyond, uh, City of the Living Dead, a.k.a. The Gates of Hell. That's the Lucio Fulci that I know. So then one time in the mid-80s or late-80s, I rented something called Conquest. Google search Conquest, Lucio Fulci, VHS cover. And you tell me that's not the coolest VHS cover. I'm going to tweet it later today, damn it. It is unwatchable, literally unwatchable. <laughs> and so I was like, I already knew that Lucio Fulci was not exclusively horror. I knew that he had done a lot of various genres, and I love that about him. He's a guy who loves genre films. And Contraband seems to be his version of The Godfather, but he can't possibly make a movie without putting in wildly over-the-top violence. It's fascinating to me that this is an Italian movie a decade after The Godfather came out where The Godfather's influence on the movie is undeniable. And the idea that you're watching an Italian filmmaker take cues from an American movie about how to make a movie about the mafia is bizarre. And the most violent movie you'll ever see about cigarette smuggling. It, the plot is torturously convoluted. But it's that kind of storytelling where you've got to keep up with 15 people and there's lots of factions and there's all sorts of stuff going on between the different uh, families. And it's a, it's exhausting. I, I, it's laughable because a lot of the dubbing, the dialogue is so over the top bad. And the dubbing, some of the actors voices just don't fit. Like you'll see like a 60 year old tough guy, Italian man. And he talks like a 22 year old Eddie Deason. Wow. Wow. But there's a bit where a guy is at the horse race. And he's cheering and clapping. He's like, my horse, my horse. His horse wins. He turns around. Assassin puts a gun in his mouth and blows the back of his head off. Wow. It's as cheesy as it is. Some of the effects in this movie are actually pretty good. <laughs> uh, there was a point in the uh, mid-90s where I worked for a company out of New York. Turned out they had some um, illicit monies floating around in the, uh, the company's funding. And I didn't totally understand the first couple of times I went out there how mob connected everything was uh, by my third or fourth meeting. Everybody had loosened up and I started getting told stories and I realized, oh, my God, I'm actually talking to people that that are connected to New York mob. They told me a story that blew my mind back then. You can't help but think about it when you're watching something like contraband like Bob the Gambler. Um, there was a lot of behind the scenes help on contraband from the actual mafia. There was money that was put into the movie. There were scenes that they suggested script changes, uh, scenes they wanted to see. While he is definitely borrowing from The Godfather, he's also borrowing from real life when he's making this film. There was a weird thing that, that happened because of The Godfather where I think every criminal on the planet started to want to see themselves in movies, and they started to want to see movies about themselves. And those movies in particular were so canonized. I got told a story about how in the late 70s, early 80s, all the guys around uh, Sammy the Bull and John Gotti and that sort of New York mob family they were so enraptured with The Godfather that they bought video camera equipment. And like those kids that did Raiders of the Lost Ark, the actual mob did a Godfather where they played the parts and actually did dialogue and scenes from the movies floating around out there. That tape exists. And so I would a would love to find that someday. But B, that's what contraband felt like to me, like real gangsters decided I really like The Godfather. But it's not violent enough, and it's not Italian enough. Can we remake it? Uh, yeah, it feels like the screenplay for Contraband was written like your boys. Imagine your boys come home from like 
Thor. And they're bouncing off the walls. They're having a bomb Thor. I'm Valkyrie. I'll kick your butt. I, rawr, I'm Loki. Right. And then you were to like tie them to a chair and say, okay, now write a Thor screenplay. That's what contraband feels like. These guys just watched five gangster movies and they're bouncing off the walls. And someone said, all right, now write contraband. Well, if you really want to see it, it is available right now on Amazon Prime. So if you have an Amazon Prime account, you can find contraband there and you can find our next film, which I had never seen. Please tell us about Don't Go in the Woods Alone. For some people, a simple warning is never enough. By the time Alma heard it, it was too late. Something's out there in the woods, and it's killing people. Joni never thought it could happen to her. Ingrid and Peter couldn't believe it happened to them. Something's out there, waiting. Something a little bit wild and crazy. For some people, a simple warning is never enough. The title is actually Don't Go in the Woods, but for some reason, they put alone on the poster like it was a tagline or something. So now, because of the poster, people call it Don't Go in the Woods Alone. That trivia tidbit is more interesting than anything in this amateurish, horrible film. It's like somebody finally decided, oh, these Friday the 13th movies, they keep getting fucked up by plot and character. What if they were just terrible kills of people that we hate? The fact that I love horror movies as much as I do makes me more annoyed, not less annoyed, when I see just grade Z garbage like this. And it honestly makes the Friday the 13th sequels look like legitimate Hollywood productions. Drew, one thing that you'll find interesting about this is that the director previously made several films for Sun Classics. I would not have believed he'd ever made anything because it's so slapdash. It is so pasted together by tears and sorrow. It's not scary. The acting is bad. The effects are bad. It's poorly edited. When when people trash the, the shittiest 80s horror movies, they generally mean the, the wide release stuff. And Oh, they never even saw this stuff. It's funny. You said this right next to Madman, which we talked about. And the difference is Madman, same exact motivation. Somebody saw a bunch of these movies and went, I can do that. But Madman feels like a goofy lunatic who actually enjoyed those movies, having fun doing it. And this feels like... The biggest cynical, let's just go cash in on this. And look, this guy is in the middle of one of these ironic hipster resurgences because of Jungle Trap, a movie he made a couple of years ago where people are now talking about it as, oh, maybe he's like one of those outsider art kind of guys. And he's and I, if I'm not mistaken, didn't Fantastic Fest show Jungle Trap? I'm not buying it, guys. I think this guy is brutally incompetent. And, you know, you're talking about a dude who spent most of his career toiling in the sexploitation, making movies like thanks for the memories. I'm not laughing. I'm not amused. I don't think he's talented. And I think this is genuinely one of the worst things I've watched for the podcast so far. Let's just move on to something slightly more professional. When we talked about the last film from these two guys, uh, it was one of our big breaking points where I, I... was a little surprised at how much you dislike Nice Dreams. But, buddy, even you've got to admit, Nice Dreams is the Blues Brothers compared to the horror of Things Are Tough All Over. It's Cheech and John. Yeah, my dog. And Cheech and John. You have killed the cop. In a high-flying comedy in search of truth. I feel like we're wearing dresses, man. Beauty. Hey, baby, how's it going? And a piece of the action. We have a very special surprise planned for you. Things are tough all over. Rated R. Starts Friday at a theater near you. When you put them front and center and you just ask them to mug for 90 minutes and then you give them two more roles. Oh, as Arabs, by the way. I'm sure that's going to go over really well. It leaves Chicago and it is now a road trip to Vegas. And there's money in the limo. One of the things that I loved about the early Cheech and Chong films, Up and Smoke and Next Movie and, and Nice Dreams, is they were all L.A. films and they were shot using a pretty wide array of L.A. talent at the time. So you had a lot of early groundlings. You had a lot of really talented young comic actors. This movie has none of that. Uh, it's directed by the guy who edited a couple of their early films, Thomas K. Avelson. There is a reason he did not direct again after this. It is just incompetent start to finish from the beginning crazy offensive just when tommy chong turns sideways and he's got that nose 
I'm like, that is Nazi propaganda art. It's so ugly. And I, I know Cheech and Chong are not hateful guys. I think there's a tenor of the time that you have to remember this is what was considered palatable or okay. But, dude, it's ugly. It's crazy how racist popular culture was. It's as if there's like a rule that says, okay, don't be too offensive to anybody except if somebody is an Arab. Then you can be as hateful and as vindictive as you want to be. It's just leering, and a lot of it feels like bad improv. They have their real-life uh, wives at the time. Shelby Chong and Ricky Marin are both in the movie as the French girls that are with the Arab businessmen. The, like the strongest impression that any other character makes in the film, and this is where these movies make zero sense, Donna shows up again, Evelyn Guerrero, who is in Next Movie and Nice Dreams, and in every one of these is kind of Cheech's fantasy girl, and she keeps popping up, and it's always Donna! Like, there's no way any of this is supposed to make sense together or add up. None of these pieces fit together. They couldn't even keep the energy up for three solid films. Like, that to me says that their bag was a fairly shallow one. They did not have a lot to do. They did not have a lot of range. And considering, like, the earlier films had leaned so heavily on improvisation and they knew that the groundlings were invaluable to that, I'm baffled by the guys they hired for this movie who... They're not good at it. They're not funny. They're not interesting. They don't create characters that stand out. Until Rip Taylor shows up, there's almost nobody else that registers on screen. And if Rip Taylor is your highlight in your movie, dude, it's not a movie for me. The movie is just a death march of terrible comedy. I did not laugh once. As a defender of the three films that came before this, I'm saying this is where the train hopped the rails and everybody's off. Now we move on to one of the most influential horror films of 1982. Of course, we are referring to Drew McWeeny's favorite film of the year. Friday the 13th, part three in Super 3D. The all-new process that puts you in the picture. Whether you want to be there or not. It will scare you. Count on it. Friday the 13th, part three in Super 3D, rated R. Friday the 13th, part three is kind of where it started to get stupid. The weirdest thing for me is this is the first one, considering the budgets of the first two and considering who they were made by and, and how they were made, it's weird to say this is the first one that feels sleazy. This feels like a porno film with no porno in it. I think maybe because of what it was shot on for the 3D, it just looks faded and tacky. It looks like a film from the 50s that has not been remastered. It does not look like a film from 1982. This is the sequel in which Jason acquires his infamous hockey mask. It's the only reason that the kids saw it when they were watching the Friday movies, because I would have skipped this and gone right to four, except... They had the question over and over, well, where did he get the hockey man? Well, damn it. It's not very interesting. It's not very iconic when he does it. He gets it from one of the most obnoxious characters you'll ever see in a movie played by the awesome Larry Zerner. He is your practical joke character who takes everything too far. And then when he dies, no one believes him. So take that practical jokers. Starts out with a relatively eclectic group of counselors on their way to a camp. Some of them are horny. Some of them are stoned on marijuana weed. Oh, that's bad. Yeah, that is bad. Wow. Um, <laughs> you know, this is where the template was pretty much cemented. Divorced from the fact that the film looks like crap because it was shot in 3D. Does it stand up as the decent Friday sequel? I don't know. It feels almost like a remake of part one. There was no master plan here. They were just looking at the receipts each time and going, oh, shit, we got to do it again. And the 3D gimmick. What's your favorite up in your face gag in this movie? Oh, come on. It's the eyeball. I kind of love the guy walking on his hands who gets smashed down the middle. And I don't know what his spine it's the camera. I don't know what that I mean, it looks like a Mr. Potato Head falls out of him. I don't know what there, there are. If you like those cheesy, kitschy, whoa, the oh, yo-yo is right in the cow in my face. Wow. Uh, the movie has some fun, goofy moments like that. Certainly not the nadir of the franchise. Not the worst thing uh, that's ever had that title. But it was an indicator that they weren't going to pay a lot of time or care to making these. They were just going to keep hustling them out. I get 3D. All right, fine. You now we're getting into the 3D thing that's that's now resurgent temporarily and will be gone soon. Thank God. 1983 is rife with these movies and and then they're gone by pretty much 84. 
But why does the 3D gimmick imply that you have to have a disco version of the theme song? Uh, because it's awesome. As soon as I mentioned that we were watching that one, Todd Gilchrist sent me the disco version to play for the boys. And uh, yeah, it's it is something else. You mention any obscure piece of movie music and that Todd Gilchrist will send it to you. Yeah, just pop up right away. Oh, let me send you that. Uh, Thank you, Todd. It's awesome. Friday the 13th Part 3, I would call it a passable entry. It has some wacky deaths. Some of the kills are ridiculous. Some of the kills are actually pretty damn creepy. And that's pretty much that. So this next film is one that uh, there are two different versions of this movie. There was a version that came out in 1979 that had a happy ending and was a pretty different experience overall. And then three years later, the version that opened in in New York uh, had been uh, reworked completely and retitled as Chilly Scenes of Winter. Charles loves Laura. Laura likes Charles. I want to sleep with you. Wait a minute. Charles would marry Laura tomorrow. Wait a minute. <laughs> But Laura's already married to a guy called Ox. Joan Nicklin Silver's Chilly Scenes of Winter. <laughs> now I'm no longer alone. A comedy about people trying to connect in a disconnected world. Uh, this is an early film from Joan Nicklin Silver, uh, a very good writer-director. This is, uh, in its earliest iteration, was known as Head Over Heels. Stars John Hurd and Mary Beth Hurt. He's in love with her. She decides that she's going to go back with her husband from whom she was separated. And he continues to pursue a married woman. It's told in a a fractured timeline. So we see it starts after their relationship. But then we're also going back and forth in the relationship. You know, there's stuff in this that I like. John Hurt is charming through a lot of this. But there's also a lot of it that is really uncomfortable. Yes. Where I don't like either of these characters. And it's interesting. It was produced by Amy Robinson, Griffin Dunn, and Mark Metcalf. And Mark Metcalf, for those of you who don't recognize the name, he's Niedermeyer from Animal House. And he's in this film. Griffin Dunn and Amy Robinson became a producing team together for many years after this. This was where they decided they, they were going to option this book by Ann Beattie. And then they hired Joan Micklin Silver to come in and, and write and direct it. And it is interesting in that it is clearly not a male voice approaching the material. The craziest thing to me is having just seen this and having just rewatched Garp a month before, I watched this whole movie and then had to go back and look at the movie again because I still right now don't believe it's Mary Beth Hurt. She is a different human being than she was in Garp. I don't recognize her. It is a very weird romantic comedy about one of those guys who doesn't take no for an answer, keeps pursuing the woman, and it's meant to be taken as, uh, he's uh, he's charming, he's uh, tenacious. Because it comes from a, a woman, it's slightly more palatable. It's almost like this writer is trying to get into the mindset of that, I won't give up guy. And I think she makes her, Mary Beth Hurt's character, it's kind of a piece of shit. And she is constantly telling him, I am not worth your attention. I am not worth all of this. I'm a terrible person. I'm going in and out of this relationship with my husband. I treat him terribly. The movie should have been called Mixed Signals. Well, and then there's a line that comes late in the film where she says to him, it's easier being with him because he doesn't love me enough than it is with you because you love me too much. It's not that he loves her too much. It's that he's obsessed with her. It is a weird portrait of obsession as love. I don't really buy that as love anyway. I think that is one of those movie conceits oh look he sleeps on a park bench outside her apartment that's charming no it's not it's freaky uh the movie is periodically amusing it's not a bad movie but it is a weirdly misshapen movie it does have an animal house reunion in mark metcalf and peter Riegert. gloria graham as a nice role uh we have to always mention when the great kenneth mcmillan shows up in an 80s all over film yeah and he's and he's very he's very good he plays uh, john hurd's uh stepfather not altogether successful obscurity, but I didn't have a bad time watching it. Our next film is one of the weirdest of this filmmaker's careers. And that is saying something. <laughs> yeah, because you're talking about Ralph Bakshi. Hey, good looking. Let's do something outrageous. 
see Brooklyn the way it was in the 50s, my man, as only Ralph Bakshi and his boys can do it. That's right, the same dude that gave you Fritz the Cat and Heavy Traffic is gonna give it to you once again in the wildest and craziest movie of your ever-loving life. Hey, good looking. This is Ralph Bakshi's American Graffiti, basically. Uh, hey, Good Looking is a film that he had in production for, I want to say, six, seven years. Dude, it was first shot in, yeah, 75 and was totally different at that point. So, yeah, this was not an easy birth for him. I don't know what I would have made of this movie when I was 14 or 15, but as an adult, I find it grossly fascinating. And the weirdest part is the original design for it, it was supposed to be live action and animation, and he shot it with live action guys in crazy costumes, and then he was going to animate the lead characters into these scenes. So, like, the New York Dolls were cast, Yafit Koto was supposed to be in the live action stuff, and they shot a lot of that. And then I guess as he was looking at it, he just, I don't get how you get that far down the road and then realize that's not going to work. This was at one point a Warner Brothers movie that they had put some money into. And then he would work on this in bits and pieces around other things that he was doing. And he kept coming back to this. So uh, Richard Romanus, who, you know, was in Mean Streets, um, uh, David Proval, who everybody knows at this point from The Sopranos are guys who have very specific sort of New York, heavy-duty, exaggerated styles to begin with. And then you've got the visual exaggeration that happens with Bakshi. And that's where I find it interesting, but I also find Bakshi is, is an American grotesque. Like, he genuinely must find people grotesque because all of his stylization is crazy exaggerated. Everybody in this movie is, is shitty. The hero his crazy sidekick, the two women that they're wooing, uh, the bad guys, the bad gangs, the adults, everybody in Ralph Bakshi's world is sleazy. This movie takes place in the 1950s Brooklyn, and it's about a young punk and his obnoxious sidekick and the trouble that they get into over the course of one night. Uh, horribly ugly, violent, nasty, sexual things happen. And he's just all over the place with his tone. I don't really get what he's going for here well and that's there's a bizarre wraparound that serves almost like as a twist ending when the, the you finally get back to the wraparound and you realize what you've actually been watching and to some degree it justifies the crazy exaggeration of the movie and the weird stylistic exaggeration of it but you feel that this was not a coherent all the way through vision. And there's a lot of other films at the time that between when he first conceived this in 73, 74, and then when this finally came out in 82, the fifties thing on film and TV had happened without him. And I think he thought he was kind of ahead of the game. Oh, that's a good point. If this had come out in 76, he missed the boat with a uh, Greece American graffiti, right? And his idea of, I'm going to show this, the real sexually explicit fifties. I'm going to show the fact that there was a lot more violence in the fifties than people talked about in the pop culture. Again, he got scooped like other people told that story and other people made those movies and and they did it in live action in a way that I think eluded him. And that's really a filmmaker running up against the limitations of who they are as a filmmaker. I don't think he was a strong enough filmmaker to make the jump into live action and to make a movie that combined both in a way that really worked and took advantage of the strengths of both. He's an animator. He thinks like an animator. So exaggeration and that kind of weird stylization rarely translates to live action. You've got to be a master to, to pull that off. There is at the UCLA archive, they evidently have a three-minute promo that was shown at the Cannes Film Festival of the live action version. And I want to see it someday just to see what the costuming and the styles look like and to see how, how much it matched the crazy exaggeration of everything else. Yeah, like most of Ralph Bakshi's film, it is a compromised and not entirely successful piece of work, but it is fascinating. I, I can't say that I enjoyed revisiting this one because it's kind of ugly and it has a lot of downtime. Tonally, like I said, it's all over the place. At one point, it's a uh, trenchant indictment uh, of 50s culture and the teen culture courting rituals of teens in the 50s. And then five minutes later, it's a brutal thriller about murder and revenge and it feels a lot like uh philip kaufman's the wanderers but rubbed through like uh 
sleazy animation. I find it ironic that considering Warner Brothers had money in it at the beginning and then really didn't know what to do and almost sued Bakshi over it at one point. The only place you can get it now besides renting it on iTunes is on DVD on man from Warner Archive. So it is available. It is out there. And yeah, for animation fans or people that want Bakshi's complete filmography, it's a fascinating, weird, truly fascinated by Ralph Bakshi's feature film career. Hey, Scott, what's our next movie? (laughs) The animal kingdom brought them together. She, the beauty. He, the beast master. Mark Singer is Dar. Tanya Roberts is Carrie. And in a world of evil, they found love. This is their quest, their challenge, their epic adventure. Here is a new kind of hero and heroine, the beast master. What, what kind of segue was that? <laughs> uh, there's no real segue into Beastmaster, dude. It's just Beastmaster. I love that in the uh, Joe Lynch bonus episode, he talks about meeting Coscarelli and he's talking about his movies and everything's going well until he goes, oh, and I love the Beastmaster. And he just saw the blood rush out of Don's body. And it's funny because 12, 13 year old Drew would have said the same thing to Don Coscarelli and caused the same reaction. You got to tell our listeners, why is that funny? This is a movie that was taken away from Don. Coscarelli was a guy that came from a very independent background and he had a, a charm situation on Phantasm. He was very, very young. But because it was largely self-financed, he was able to do things his way. And it took me a while to fall completely in love with Phantasm. But as an adult now looking at it, I love Phantasm. I think it's a beautiful, weird nightmare of a movie where it doesn't make logical sense, but I don't believe it's supposed to. It all feels like a nightmare. There is certainly ambition on display in this early 80s fantasy film, but it is a movie that I don't believe Don Coscarelli ever truly got to sign his own way. He was frustrated while he was shooting it, frustrated while he was cutting it, and the version that exists now is not the version that Don would have ever signed off on. Yeah, I have to believe that Don's original version of this movie would have been a bit more like The Sword and the Sorcerer. More action, more blood, uh, a little more intense. Uh, While The Beastmaster is uh, kitschy and enjoyable, it is kind of light and forgettable. Ultimately, either cut would have been about a dude who has ferrets as his secret power. So take that into account. Mark Singer as the Beastmaster looks great. Tanya Roberts is the love interest. It's a sword and sandals movie with an evil rip torn doing terrible things to people. And on the other hand, the movie almost feels like it's a PG movie about likable ferrets. There are some cool ideas in it. I love the hallway where it's all the arms coming out. I love the weird bird leather wing creature. Yeah, it does have some good set pieces. And people may be wondering, well, Scott, Drew, why is the movie called the Beast Master? Does he master beasts? Yes. And then he needs glasses. Oh, wow. No, he has the ability to speak to animals and control them. And so clearly, if you're a warrior, The animals that you would use would be a panther, which comes in very handy when it eats everybody and fights. Falcon, which uh, is very handy because it can see things and help in fights. And his ferrets, because they're ferrets. And they're adorable. (laughs) Kodo and Poto. I'm guessing that if this had been made by Disney in the uh, 90s, there would be 37 Beastmaster movies and Kodo and Poto would star in all of them. What seems like you say the film was taken away from Don Coscarelli. What? In the final product, can you see that that speaks to uh, the film being taken away by producers? Uh, The editing. It is a movie that never feels like it settles into any kind of rhythm. And say what you will about Don's other films. Don has a voice as a filmmaker and there is a rhythm to his cutting that is Don. This is a flabby movie and that score does nobody any favors. It's one of those films. uh, There was a a famous joke Dennis Miller made about how uh, HBO at one point should have been called Hey, Beastmasters on TBS got hold of it at one point and played it for, I think, 17 years straight. Oh, 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 another good thing. uh, We mentioned Tanya Roberts and Rip Torn. John Amos. John Amos is really good. I like John Amos. I love that. It's I love, though, that they did nothing to him costuming wise or hair wise except the ponytail. It looks like he just walked off the set of Good Times and said, all right, give me my lines. Yeah, terrific. And for those of us who grew up on Good Times, it is hilarious that he's just got the ponytail and he's dad. He's having fun. That's what's good about John Amos in this movie. He's having fun. The scene that gave me nightmares as a kid were those bat creatures. They hug you and then dissolve you. Oh, All right. So uh, our next movie here, 
features a uh, an appearance by a wildly popular 80s star that is so shocking that when my girlfriend walked through the room, she stopped cold in her tracks and went, no. And I'm speaking, of course, about young Michael J. Fox and his work in class of 1984. Life is pain. Pain is everything. Somebody's got to stop this insanity. If they are the future, who will stop them? <gasps> Class of 1984, rated R. This is one of the best B-movies of the year, directed by Mark Lester, who uh, 80s junkies will know from Firestarter, Commando, and the John Candy vehicle, Armed and Dangerous. Perry King from Riptide fame stars as a new music teacher who battles against a wildly powerful high school gang of horrible thugs, including Vincent Van Patten, one of the most evil, devious, horrible teen bullies you'll ever see in a movie. I love this fucking movie. That's cool. I'm going to go watch Vice Squad again, and you can have your class of 1984. This movie is Raiders of the Lost Ark compared to Vice Squad. Yeah, we're going to disagree on this one. I'm not a Timothy Van Patten fan. I don't buy him. You know who is really good in this movie? Roddy McDowell. Roddy McDowell's not bad. He's got probably the best scene in the movie when he finally cracks. So new teacher butts up against Dirty Thug. Uh, Dirty Thug keeps getting away with horrible shit. Then he does something that is really horrible. And then all bets are off and it turns into like massacre at Bully Central because all the bullies get it. Music teacher done fucking around i feel like they made this juvenile delinquent movie starting in about 1953 and then just kept doing it over and over and the only way you could do it over and over was to make it more violent every time and obviously the title here is look we're a couple of years in the future this is the future i think there's a part of this movie that wants to actually be somewhat indignant about where kids are headed and how bad things are going to be but clockwork orange is the radical outside artistic expression of holy shit i'm terrified of children and what they're going to be this movie is it wants it every possible it wants to be the exploitation version it wants to be clever it but that's what exploitation is man they're taking i agree but i i the exploitation movies i like somehow managed to take all that and cohere into something that works for me as a movie and this it's so cheesy and it's so silly. It literally is one of the greatest scenes of Eastwood's career in Dirty Harry, where Andrew Robinson starts to beat the shit out of himself. And Harry has to wonder what the fuck is happening. It's mind boggling to him and to audiences. Audiences have never seen a moment where the bad guy said, I'm going to do this. It is beat for beat that scene. And I'm sorry, but it's the most famous scene from Dirty Harry. B movies rip off. Better movies all the time. I, but I don't have to give them credit for ripping off something that directly that is that iconic. I, I like the fact that uh, Perry King is, it takes him so long to accept that he's working in a pit. You, I would have gotten it by day one. Idealism is great, but you know what? Idealism can thaw pretty quickly, right? And it just doesn't make sense that day in and day out, he's still surprised by how low these these students are. And if you're worried that this turns into some kind of like after school special preacherifying, we, you know, adults need to listen to teenagers better. Nope. Murder, carnage, revenge. That's how this movie solves its problems. I really enjoy this. I think it's uh, junk, but very entertaining, well-paced junk. Co-written by Tom Holland, who would go on to write and direct Fright Night and Child's Play. I will concur with you on half of your statement. Drew, this one's all you. Paul Mazursky and John Cassavetes modernizing Shakespeare. No class of 1984 shenanigans in there. This is Tempest, the story of a father and a daughter who went from dreaming dreams. Maybe I'll just find myself an island. Why can't you take me? To living them. Isn't this just so perfect? Who found love. I've never been in love. Magic. Show me the magic. And one another. Tempest, a surprising comedy. Rated PG. Check newspapers for a theater near you. It's interesting that you had a bunch of guys uh, taking a shot at Shakespeare that same summer in very different ways, and especially that it was Woody Allen and Paul Mazursky, because I think there was a point where Mazursky probably could have been Woody Allen. He could have had that 
once a year, I'm going to make a little film about relationships and I'm going to, you know, just do my thing. I think what Woody figured out so brilliantly was as long as I make a movie at this budget, I don't really owe anybody anything because they'll do okay. I can keep making movies. I'm fine. And he figured out what that ecosystem was and he never really strayed from it. This is Mazursky working on a bigger canvas than he'd ever worked on before. And it hurt him when it tanked and it tanked because it's a weird mess. It's a very strange, very self-indulgent movie. John Cassavetes is having a midlife crisis and he takes his kid and he goes to Greece where he begins to live out a rough parallel to Shakespeare's Tempest uh, right down to a uh, oh so cleverly named Calabanos played by Raul Julia. Oh, and his daughter, of course, Miranda, played by a very young Molly Ringwald. And I feel like uh, with this one, it doesn't it feel like now we're watching all the pre-Avengers Marvel movies? Because uh, look, ooh, there's young Anthony Michael Hall in six pack. Ooh, look, there's there's Emilio Estevez in text, but he's blonde. Ooh, Molly Ringwald's making her entrance now. And we're all building to the Breakfast Club, the Avengers of teen movies in the 80s, where little by little that cast is coming into focus. It's the Rat Pack cinematic universe. And of course, it's worth mentioning that both Susan Sarandon and Jenna Rollins uh, appear. And Susan Sarandon's really good in this. I, I'll give her credit. It's an early role for her, and she really sinks her teeth into it. She's really good. What I don't like about the movie is I think Tempest is a weird thing to try and hang this on. It's so strange looking at this right after Summer Lovers, where I think Mazursky's a better filmmaker than Randall Kleiser, but I think Randall Kleiser did a much better job of shooting Grease. Didn't I tell you that whenever you say Summer Lovers, you have to sing it? I'm not singing it's all one long shaggy day that is happening. It's a fairly intimate film in some ways. You've got a weird thing going on where uh, Rollins and, and Cassavetes had done all the Cassavetes films together, but they didn't really act for other people as a couple. And it's a film that I think wants to, to land all these beautiful points about life and about sort of dissatisfaction. And, and it wants to use the Tempest as a jumping off point, but I think they get handcuffed by it in trying to figure out how to do a modern equivalent of things. It's really just kind of a shapeless nothing. It's kind of up its own ass. You know, it's the 130 some minutes. I fell asleep on two separate nights watching this movie. It's a lot of navel gazing, a lot of self-important banter. Like you said, it's all over the place and, and weird. All right. So uh, speaking of weird, oh boy, Joseph Papp, one of the most significant theatrical producers of the late 70s early 80s mounted a major revival on broadway of pirates of penzance and it was such a massive commercial success that not only did they decide that they were gonna make a official pirates of penzance movie but it also launched barry bostwick back into being a movie star and was such a major hit that halfway around the world a group of australians decided they were going to make their own gilbert and sullivan update with original songs, some of the actual Gilbert and Sullivan music, and a wraparound story that was going to smear it all in a big pile of dayglow. And the result is the baffling The Pirate Movie. Only one movie will have this sound. And only one movie will have Christy McNichol and Christopher Atkins singing. Loving, laughing, leaping. And swinging their way through time in the biggest, most original movie in a hundred years, The Pirate Movie. Pirates? You mean like walking the plank, buried treasure, hack, flash off with his head and the Jolly Richard and everything? Hi, my name is Scott, and uh, I used to be madly in love with this movie. Yeah, when we first started talking about this podcast, uh, we talked about the fact that we were going to get here and you were going to have some painful things to confess. So, Scott, can you tell me about the pirate movie and your love for it? I saw this movie when I was a kid, nine or ten years old. I did not have a lot of experience with musicals at this point. You can't blame me entirely for kind of being swept up in the musical numbers. 
because they're very infantile and childish and somebody who is 10 or 11 years old can't plainly see that this film was so poorly made. It boggles the mind. Then several years ago, Anchor Bay put out the DVD and I got a copy and I let it sit sealed on a shelf for months until I was prepared because I knew that it was a terrible film, but I also knew that I had a lot of affection for it. And I then I watched it and I wanted to punch 10-year-old me in the fucking face. There's weird moments where they, they aggress and pull lightsabers out and Chris Atkins shrugs at the screen and goes, oh, I saw it in a movie one time. As a kid, I probably chuckled at that. As an adult, I wanted to put my foot through my television. You can't tell me that you didn't have fun watching this terrible movie. I didn't make it all the way through. There came a point about, I don't know, 50 minutes in where I was like, I'm not getting anything else out of this. It's not like it's going to suddenly turn. But then you miss the happy ending song. You miss the best song. Then I got my very own happy ending because I didn't have to sit through it to get there. To me, the pirate movie is a clear indication of why you cannot trust childhood memories. If you loved a bad movie as a kid, my advice, don't see it again. Because I would rather have the hazy, happy childhood memories of quietly enjoying the pirate movie at a screening with my sister when I was 10 or 11 than watching it on DVD with my hand over my mouth as if I had endorsed a murderer. It's a great lesson to learn. A, kids are stupid. Not all kids. Drew's kids are pretty. One of Drew's kids are pretty smart, but I won't say which one. (laughs) Just to keep the mystery alive. You know what I mean. By and large, kids like just about every movie because they're kids. They don't have a huge store of of comparison to go, you know, and you'd say to a little kid, how did you like pirate movie? And they'll walk away singing one of the songs. But I I wish to God you had seen me revisiting this movie because my hand was literally over my mouth just laughing. You know what movie does hold up? Our last film this week. I love this movie. I watched it again last night. And aside from maybe hairstyles and clothes, Nothing in this film is dated. I love, and I'm so happy we get to wrap it up this week, Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Is this necessary? That was my skull. I'm so wasted. Is this proper? What is it that gets inside your heads? Uh, Is this educational? No, but it sure is fun. Hey, bud, let's party. See Fast Times at Ridgemont High, where only the rules get busted. Rated R. This is the template for how to make a funny, sexy, smart comedy about teenagers and make it honest and insightful and bittersweet. Written by Cameron Crowe, directed by Amy Heckerling, featuring, uh, I mean, it's like American Graffiti was A and Dazed and Confused was C. This was B. This movie launched countless careers because the screenplay is great, the performances are great, and the film as a whole still holds up remarkably well. It's based on a book by Cameron Crowe that was written when he was actually at Rolling Stone and he was a reporter And he had the idea to go back to high school because he still looks so young and just write about what kids were like at that point. The book is terrific. It's out of print. It's almost impossible to get your hands on at this point. It's a shame because I think the book is amazing. What's truly interesting is how close the film was. Like they didn't change much to the point where there were people who are their names are used in the movie. And I think they were upset by that. These are loved characters. This movie loves the characters that are in it, whether uh, we're talking about uh, Brad Hamilton, who is uh, Judge Reinhold, or his younger sister, Stacy, or whether it's Mark Ratner and Mike Damone. The highlight of the movie for most people, and certainly a performance that when you look at it now, is just perfect. Jeff Spicoli, played by Sean Penn, is one of those performances where they put the right guy in the right role at the right moment, and it's just magic. Jennifer Jason Lee, Phoebe Cates, Amanda Wiss, Forrest Whitaker, Eric Stoltz, Nicholas Cage, uh, Anthony Edwards in small parts. It just launched a whole lot of careers. Porky's and Fast Times are the films that kickstarted the 80s teen sex craze. And one thing that Fast Times got that almost none of the other films did, and, and until John Hughes, I don't think a lot of them even tried, was to create these teenagers as human beings. 
It can still be sexy and funny and raunchy and dangerous and edgy, but write it honestly. Don't just write them as horny idiots. Write them as real characters. Spend a few minutes watching the girls clean up their food court at the mall. A few minutes of, of the, the guys hanging out and the way they talk about girls. Insightful character development beats these knockoffs never had. And that's what Fast Time makes it so good. Well, it gets that sex is a responsibility. Stacy's arc in this movie, she has disastrous early encounters with sex. And what's clear is that they're not trying to make this a movie about, hey, everybody's got to get laid. Everybody's got to score. It's a movie about the fact that, yes, people are at this point. They're experimenting. They're trying things out. They're trying to learn what their their personality is. I love that Phoebe Cates' character, I think, for the most part, is full of shit. I think almost everything she says in that movie is a fabrication. Um, almost all of it, but it all happens off screen and we never see the moment where she gets busted for it. No, it's funny as hell you say that because as a kid, we don't get that. When I saw this movie at 15, I'm like, whoa, Phoebe Kate's character, she's been around. She knows what's up. She's smart. And you see the movie when you're 30 and you're like, oh, isn't she cute? Just boasting and bullshitting to all the younger girls. Uh, another sequence that everybody remembers is, of course, the one where Phoebe Cates, there's the fantasy scenes where she gets out of the pool and she undoes her bikini top and it's all there as clear as day. But what's the point of that scene? The point of that scene is not to leer at the girl. The point of that scene is that Brad is in the bathroom whacking off. Every guy who ever watched that scene and did that is missing the joke. Amy Heckerling and Cameron Crowe are making fun of you. Uh, and, and the scene where Jennifer Jason Leigh later on, she thinks sex is supposed to bring her warmth and companionship and, and kindness. But she found from her first couple of lovers, that's not going to be true. You know, I imagine that many girls and guys had deflowerings or several early boyfriend girlfriends where they felt like a piece of meat. They felt disrespected and that's what's so great about jennifer jason lee is she does feel exploited she does feel shitty but it it's not about her life being ruined it's about growing pains she'll get past that i think everybody in the movie has very interesting arcs i one of my favorite scenes in the movie and it's a scene that's directly out of crow's book is i love when mr hand finally shows up at spicoli's house and there's a feeling at the beginning i seen like is spicoli really stoned and imagining this because it's so crazy but over the course of that scene, the easy joke is Ray Walston comes to the house. He's an asshole and he ruins his night. And it's just revenge for him being the way he is in class. That's not at all what they play. What they play instead is he's there to actually get through to him. No, no, this matters. You ruined some of my time. I'm going to take a little of yours. But you watch the end of that scene. He's kind to him. And when he talks to him, there's even some affection there. That is so humanizing and so interesting, and it makes that scene so wonderful. I can't get enough of what Sean Penn does in this film. It is truly amazing when you look at Taps from the year before, and you look at those two performances side by side. I can't believe that's the dude from Taps, because he is so good at playing this guy who is every neuron is burned closed at this point. What I love about Sean Penn in this movie is not just that he's wonderfully iconic and funny and just nails every moment. He broke out because of a comedy and except for like one movie with De Niro, name another comedy that Sean Penn has been in in the last 30 years. He shows up in the background of some jackass movies because he's there with his kid, but that's about it. Right. And I'm thinking of like, we're no angels, but like, when is Sean Penn known to be funny? Never. I am Sam. Uh, let's talk real quickly about the soundtrack and why it's so important. Uh, Cameron Crowe, as anybody can tell you, is a rock junkie. I have to believe that he had some influence. This movie has um, the Go-Go's, Billy Squire, uh, Stevie Nicks, Don Henley, and Joe Walsh, Oingo Boingo. Well, it's the difference between putting a soundtrack together at the moment that these people are actually working and then trying to do a nostalgia soundtrack. Because now I, I saw the post the other day, the Spielberg film, and without getting into the movie at all, it opens in Vietnam. And the moment it opens in Vietnam, I'm like, don't do it, don't do it. And then you hear run through the jungle begin. And it's like, ah, they went with that again. There are certain cues that I can't hear tied to certain time periods because they've been so overdone. This soundtrack is pretty deep. Not a lot of top 40 singles. No. Yeah. It's not everybody else's. Even the Boingo track, Goodbye Goodbye, is a great Boingo track and a little bit odd as a choice. But perfect for the closing credits. It's a movie that I have a huge affection for. The cast is terrific across the board. I can't say enough good about Jennifer Jason Lee in this movie. She makes Stacy real. 
And it would be so easy for this movie to leer at her. She doesn't let the movie leer at her. Or belittle her and be like, oh, look at the awkward girl doesn't know how to screw, you know, like the Heckerling cares for her. And Heckerling is very careful to portray that character. But it has affection. That's what I love is that this movie, you hand Cameron Crowe's screenplay to somebody else. And these characters could be drawn as mean spirited and ugly and selfish. And they are occasionally selfish, but for the most part, they're very realistic characters. It's a movie that has endured and that I think I really believe stands as one of the great coming of age movies for young people who want to see high school portrayed right. And the fact that it still plays as fresh as it does and as close to right as it does speaks to the way that Crow wasn't writing about trends. He was writing about the underlying truth that never changes. I really do think that she approaches these young people, the, the boys, but also most importantly, the girls with a real respect and a real empathy of I've been there. I've been that awkward girl. I've been that person and I'm not going to ridicule. I'm going to honor these characters. There was a moment that they shot for the film that they had to cut because it became a trade-off in terms of the rating. They both go to her pool house and they're they're changing. The original shot, and they actually shot it, was both of them full frontal standing facing each other. And it was designed to level the playing field. Heckerling wanted to show that they were both nervous. They both felt a little ridiculous. They were both exposed. And then they came together. And that was supposed to be how it played out. The ratings board made her choose between leaving the shot of him fully frontal naked in it or leaving in the carrot scene earlier between the two girls. And she couldn't lose that scene. That scene is is a key memory for, I think, many girls have that moment where they're teaching their friends things that they've heard or they're talking about how technique works and things. And I find it ridiculous and offensive, frankly, that they made them choose at all because I think both of those scenes speak to the reality of teen sexual experience, whereas so much of what the rest of the genre gets away with is just TNA for the sake of TNA. And I find that far more degrading and unpleasant. When a movie kickstarts an entire subgenre, there's usually a reason for that. And it's not just because it made money. If, if you were copying something that just made money, that trend would have petered out after a year or so. I honestly believe that the teen sex comedy craze ran for so long because people were trying to not only capture the money that Fast Times and Porky's did, but they were trying to capture some kind of artistry, some kind of quality that Fast Times did. And 90% of those, 95% of those films failed miserably. So uh, while if you have uh, a complete disdain for this whole uh, 80s trend, I don't blame you, but I, I really implore you to at least check out Fast Times at Ridgemont High. It is our movie of the month. And that is August of 1982. Next month, American Zoetrope continues to shit the bed. We are going to have the worst performance in a lead role from a musician turned actor, maybe of all time, the craziest war movie ever made, and one of the most sublime comedies of the 80s. All of that in September of 1982. We'll see you guys back here in two weeks. Oh, wait just a minute. Doesn't anybody fucking knock anymore?